Well, this is the third part of the two-part series about uh, trust and divorce. And where it came out is uh, that after I posted the last two episodes, uh, the two parts of the episode about the 10 causes for divorce and how they're related to trust or more specifically to distrust, I got a lot of comments and decided to attack this from a different angle from the definition of trust and why trust is so important for marriage. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Let's start with the definition that I have for trust. To me, trust is the level to which you are willing to accept the possibility of negative consequences from giving control over something you have to someone or something else, expecting them to minimize the possibility, the possibility of negative consequences. Uh, And I think that the best way to describe it is to actually, or explain it, is to actually start by asking, why do we trust? Why do we trust? And we all heard the phrase, there's no risk, no reward, or no reward, no risk. Well, actually, it's no risk, no no reward. Uh, And we know that if we expect a reward, then we must take some risk. So let's start with what is the reward in marriage? And different people marry for different reasons, but I'm I'm going to uh, at least, uh, you know, cover the ones that were important to me or the ones that uh, that I counted uh, for myself. I didn't even ask my wife if that's what she felt as well. One element is the consistency of love and sex, really. You want to be loved by the same person and not have to work on being loved, on on, uh, uh, getting someone to love you like every day all over again. You like that consistency. It's comfort. Uh, The fact that there is another person to uh, even to share share activities with, uh, to share the workload with. Uh, It's fun. It's fun to have another person, a person that uh, you can have fun with, a person that can complete your sentences and you can complete theirs, a person that um, you don't have to work hard uh, for them to understand you. It's someone that has your back. And, and really, I have to say today that nobody will have my back as much as my wife. And I hope that that's what she feels. I know that I will have her back more than I will have anybody else's back. I hope that she feels that as well. It's to avoid loneliness. Loneliness, at least for most of us, uh, at least for me, okay, uh, is something that I don't enjoy. And when you're married uh, on a consistent way, you avoid loneliness. Then in come the kids, now, sure, you can have kids out of wedlock. You, you can um, have kids without getting married. But uh, I think it's different when you are married uh, to have uh, the kids. And, and finally, it's pooled finances. 
you know, call it economies of scale, but when you got two people, uh, especially if it's two people working, but in any other way, uh, the fact that you only need one house to live in and, uh, well, we can't get along with only one car anymore, but uh, there are a lot of things that, that we can share. We only need one oven and and well if we need one oven uh, i'm trying to understand why do we have four well it's different types of ovens and we have one of each and we share so it's sharing uh, pooling uh, the finances and not just finances resources so that's the reward that's the reward of being married let's go to what are the risks in being married uh one is that you're locked in a marriage that's not fun. Uh, mine is fun. But, you know, every now and then you argue and, and it's not fun. But it's not not fun on a consistent basis. Uh, it's not fun every now and then when we argue or or when we fight. But, but we don't do that that often. So uh, it, it's a risk that, that you're married in a marriage that is consistently not fun, or, or I'll even take it to another uh, level, uh, abusive, physical or emotional abusive marriage. Uh, that's, that's a risk. Um, you know, another risk is, uh, especially if it's not fun, and especially if it's abusive, that while you're married, you can't really see anyone else um, and if you do, that might be a reason why you would lose a significant amount of your uh, resources because, you know, you're you're the one who cheated. You're the one that had an extramarital affair and that's the cause of uh, the divorce. So you can see anyone else. And if you're not having fun with the person that you're with, then that's a problem. There's not going to be a lot of fun. It's uh, the cost of the divorce. Uh, because uh, the the longer you're married, um, now you have kids and there is uh, custody of the kids, maybe even just custody of pets. Uh, the financial cost of the separation um, and, and over time the, you accumulate more and more and more. And so there's more to lose. And what do you do if you both care about something and uh, that thing has to be... Uh, given to only one, and it's not you. Uh, it really does depend on who you are, uh, based on trust law number four. Trust is asymmetrical. Uh, maybe one person here can benefit more or uh, lose or risk more by by the separation, by by the divorce, than the other one. So there, there are different levels of risk. Uh, you know, risk is, uh, or trust is personal and, and relative. Um, and trust really relates not necessarily to the risk, not directly to the risk, but more to the fear of that risk. Some people would say, you know what, uh, that doesn't bother me that much. Take take finances, for example. When, um, uh, when, when Bill Gates uh, separates, divorced uh, his wife, Melinda, he had, what, 60, 70 billion dollars? He's going to lose half of it. Who cares? You're still left with 20, 30 billion that you don't know how to spend. Same would apply to uh, Jeff Bezos when he uh, divorced uh, from his wife. Um, 
you know, some people don't care, but but if you're really struggling financially, um, that risk is represents itself as a higher level of fear to you. And the correlation between the risk and uh, specifically fear, which is the personal instantiation of risk or personal interpretation of risk and trust is that as long as you feel that you can trust the other person more than the risk or the fear that you have of that risk, you feel safe. If you trust them less, the other person less than the risk you're exposing yourself to or your fear of that risk that you're exposing yourself to, because risk is pretty objective, fear is what you feel about it, you will feel danger. And I don't know about you, but people don't like feeling danger. I don't like feeling danger. So... I will want to feel some uh, that, that that I can trust someone to a greater extent than what I have to lose or my fear of what I have to lose if the risk of losing it materializes. The risk is low when you get married. And why? Because typically you don't have kids. And again, I'm, I'm talking about kind of a, a general scenario, but, but you want to apply this to your own scenario because some people get married and bring kids from previous marriages. They may bring uh, much more significant finances. So the risk for them is much higher. But let's let's talk about, you know, a young couple, uh high school, college sweethearts, uh, they're going to get married, uh, they're on their first jobs, no kids, finances, very limited. Um, they can find another spouse at, at that point, uh, so nothing is limiting them. So there's not a lot of risk that they have. I'll, I'll take out the last one. They can find another spouse because once they get married, uh, that kind of goes away unless you leave it there as a cause for your divorce. But there's not a lot to, to lose. There's not a lot of risk. Objectively, there's not a lot of risk for getting married. If there's not a lot of risk, then you don't need a lot of trust to overcome that risk. Uh, you really need to trust the other person to the extent of what you have to lose. And if there are no kids, very little finances, uh, there's not a lot to lose. You're not in your prime years maybe yet. Um, or, or you still have a lot of your prime years ahead of you, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, if, you know, if, if that doesn't work out, you're going to find somebody else, as opposed to if you're much older, way past your prime, and, and it's going to be harder. So the risk is low, and therefore you need less trust to put on the other person. By the way, by definition, we don't know the other person for long enough to build a lot of trust either. So this kind of works great uh, or works well enough that you don't know the other person, you don't trust the other person enough, but you don't have a lot to lose, not yet anyway. So we get married. And as we're married, the risk starts to increase. It's getting harder to find another person. You, you're 
in your prime years, you're at the end of your prime years, you're past your prime years, it's going to be harder to find another person, which is a risk. The kids get into the picture. Uh, maybe there are pets already in the picture. Maybe you didn't get your first pet until after you got married. And now all of a sudden, somebody's going to get custody over the pet or the kids. So the risk increases. The finances or any other assets or any other resources, they start to accumulate. And now you're going to have to part with half of them or more. Uh, not to mention if there are kids and uh, they're minors, then uh, there's going to be uh, child support or, or any other type of uh, support. Uh, the risk increases. And if the risk increases... For you to continue and feel safe in that marriage and not danger, so need the trust be. If we stay at the same level of trust, that's not going to be enough. The level of trust you have in your spouse should increase. And oh, by the way, since time and intimacy are two components of the uh, relative trustworthiness model, as time passes, you are probably going to trust the other you trust your spouse more it, it really depends on what they contribute to the uh, uh, to the uh, interactions to to your marriage and oh by the way from their perspective it's what you contribute but trust has to continuously grow because risk needs to because risk grows doesn't need to grow but it does grow there's a lot more at stake. And in order to overcome that risk, your fear of that risk, you must trust the other person more and more as time goes by. As long as trust increases at least at the same rate as the risk or your fear from the risk is, you feel safe. It's above the line. You feel safe. You still trust them more than the risk um, of that marriage going south. Now, if it increases faster, if the level of trust you have in your spouse and the level of trust that they have in you, because you have to look at it from two different perspectives. You may be fine with the marriage, but your spouse may not because the trust they have in you is not growing as fast as the risk that they're perceiving or their fear of the risk. In which case, they may feel danger while you feel safe. Remember, trust law number four. Trust is asymmetrical, so is marriage. It's asymmetrical. But what happens if trust increases slower than the risk? So let's say that you started the level of trust you had in the other person or the level of trust the other person had in you was twice as much as the risk or the fear of the risk that the other person, um, uh, that, that that person has felt. It was twice as much. But the level of risk keeps increasing 10% every year. Generally, I would say that in four to five years, the level of trust would intersect cross that line of level of risk and it will cross it in a very bad direction because now you're going to start feeling danger not safe anymore that's when you divorce and once again it may happen to one of you not both of you and one of you is just going to feel that they don't trust the other 
uh, enough to compensate for the fear they have of the risk that they are feeling uh, in in this marriage. And they're the ones that are going to want to divorce. They're the ones that feel the danger. By the way, uh, even if your trust, the level of trust continuously increase, but not as fast as the level of risk, at some point they're going to meet. So if, let's say, again, the level of uh, trust that I had in you, uh, and I'm doing this math right now off the top of my head, so hopefully I'm not misleading you. But let's say that we started with, uh, I trust you twice as much as I fear the risk. The level of risk increases 10% every year. The level of trust increases 5% every year. Then it's probably going to take about, what, 10 years or so for those two lines to cross. And that would be the point of divorce. So you see, uh, if there was a way to measure the level of perceived risk and a way to measure the level of perceived trust, that uh, experienced trust that you have in the other person and the other, your spouse in you, we can actually project when the divorce will take place. By the way, uh, I had an argument with someone uh, over uh, the statistic that I used in the uh, previous two uh, episodes when I talked about 50% of marriages uh, dissolve. And uh, he claimed that that number is is a myth and and not true. Uh, This is coming from the American Psychological Association uh, that states, and I'm I'm reading it verbatim from their website, more than 20% of first marriages end in divorce within five years, 20% in five years, and 48% of marriages dissolve by the 20-year mark. And that's uh, based on uh, data, statistics from the National Survey of Family Growth. And by the way, that's based on 2006 to 2010 data. 2011 to through 2015 show this number going from 48% to 53%. So just, just a data point. But up until now, I referred to the... Uh, the the chart that the line that represents trust as a straight line it doesn't necessarily uh, act as a straight line especially when there is a betrayal when there is a betrayal there might have been up until that point there might have been a straight line that grows uh, at least as fast as the risk does But then when there is a betrayal, that line just drops. And remember that bad is much stronger than good. Uh, That line really, really drops. Uh, And and it could be a single act of betrayal that would cause this line to drop down and cross the risk line. And that's the point where we feel that we're in danger in that relationship rather than safe. And that would be another reason to divorce. So don't always assume that the the line, the the uh, trust line, or even the risk line are straight lines. That that's very convenient mathematically and visually, but in reality, those lines are are far from being straight. But on average, you need the trust to continuously grow faster than the uh, risk or the fear of the risk uh, line.
this episode or the th- the set of three episodes, three parts, uh, would not be complete if I didn't tell you what makes us trust the other person in a marriage uh, the, using the relative trustworthiness model. It, it starts with the three components of the who they are, who the other person is relative to me. It has to be relative to me because trust is relative and trust is personal. That's the third law of trust. By the way, the same everything that I describe here applies on the other direction when the other person needs to determine how to trust me or you. So the who they are made of three components, competence, again, relative to me. Uh, competence, maybe it's competence in bringing in income, maybe it's competence in taking care of the house, in paying the bill and keeping track of the bill, anything uh, that's competence. And that is a component of trust in a marriage. Personality compatibility. Uh, That's a big one. That's the biggest one. And, And the biggest part of personality compatibility is shared values, which I found in one of my surveys to have an 86% correlation with trust. I trust you if uh, there is an 86% correlation of how much I trust you by how much I feel that we have shared values. Uh, that's a very big one. Uh, but personality compatibility, we don't have to be identical. We don't have to be the same. Sometimes we're just complementary. Sometimes the issues are just, we're not complementary. We're not the same. We're opposite. It's just not that important. I know a lot of, uh, I'll call them cross-party marriages where uh, one member, one one spouse is a Republican, the other is a Democrat, and they get along just fine because that doesn't play a very significant part of their determination of personality compatibility. So personality compatibility is a big one. Symmetry, and, and I would say symmetry plays in many ways, but part of it is in the symmetry of contribution and symmetry of consumption. So what we bring into the marriage, what we take out. And it's not just financial, it's it's in general, what we bring in, what we take out. So symmetry of the, let's say, the love that we bring to our kids. When one spouse brings a lot of love to the kids, the other one is very cold, not home a lot. Um, and again, you know, what, what if work takes me out and uh, and therefore I'm not at home a lot? Uh, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't matter. It's still a reason to, to divorce because uh, you're not home enough. The other three components of how we, uh, we evaluate, we assess uh, how much we trust the other person is what they do when they interact with us. And it starts with positivity. And positivity is the uh, level of BS or no BS that the other person contributes to the uh, uh, to the marriage, uh, the how they argue uh, and and so on. Empathy: Do they care about me? Do do they make me feel that they care about me? Uh, the other uh, component is time, component of what they do. And again, you know, the more time we spend together, the more often we spend time together. Uh, that grows trust. And, and at least it grows our ability to assess the trustworthiness of the other uh, spouse in, in that marriage. And finally, it's intimacy. And intimacy, uh, I'll start with the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I'll call it my standard definition of intimacy, which is more face-to-face time. Because when you interact with the other person face-to-face, they can see the consistency of your body language and that makes them trust you. 
So when you interact with your spouse and you see them and you see that they mean what they say, they say what they mean, their body language and the words that they use are consistent, you trust them more. There is another component of intimacy, and I talked about that uh, in the last episode, and that's the release of oxytocin, which was found by research in 2004 by Paul Zak to have a good correlation uh, with actually pretty strong correlation to trust. So the release of oxytocin from the hypothalamus in your brain is uh, caused by, and this is again according to the uh, American Psychological uh, Association, uh, it's caused by touch and by sex. And the more we do those, the more we build intimacy, the more we build trust in the other person. So this, these are the six components. This is how I applied the relative trustworthiness model with its six components to determine what makes us trust the other person in that marriage. So how do we build and maintain a strong marriage? And, and I'm surprised that I'm, I'm getting to this point because I typically deal with trust in the workplace. I advise on trust in the workplace. That's what my workshops are about. And I don't think that I'm taking a direction change, but it's that model of trust, that the eight laws of trust and the uh, relative, the six component relative trustworthiness model, they apply to every relationship. So I'm going to use them now to give advice on how to build and man- maintain a strong trusting relationship. So first of all, before you get married, by the time you get married, build a strong enough gap between the level of trust you have in the other person and by the way, the level of trust that they have in you and your fear and their fear of the risk in this marriage. And and think about not the risk today. Think about the risk in the future. When you're trying to assess, do I trust this person enough? Ask yourself, will I trust this person? Do I trust this person enough? Or will I? do I think that I will be able to trust this person enough? When I have $10 million in the bank, when we have three kids, when we have I don't know what, will I be able to trust them that much? I think that initially you're going to answer yourself by saying probably not so much. I don't know them well enough. Well, here's your answer. Get to know the other person better. Notice areas. You have the six components of the uh, relative trustworthiness model. Notice the areas of distrust. Are those going to be issues? Are you going to be able to overcome them? You know, I just realized that I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, or I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican. That bothers me. But does it bother me enough to say this thing is going to hurt our marriage? So notice, pay attention to areas of distrust. Analyze your relationship. Analyze how you see the other person. Let the other person analyze how they see you. And then ask yourself, are we going to overcome these areas of distrust or potential distrust? Or are those chickens going to come home to roost later on, causing a divorce? Assess that gap and know if you think, if you feel at this point that you can overcome, uh, not, not overcome the gap, but that you can keep that gap, trust higher than risk or fear. 
So, and, and the best advice I can give you is get to know the other person better. Don't focus on the uh, theatrical act of getting married, uh, the, the proposal itself. Focus on really getting to know the other person. Let them get to know you. It doesn't do any good if you know them well enough. You know, you believe beyond any reasonable doubt that you'll be able to trust them over the long period, over the long term, but they don't. So it's it's as important that you get to know them and, and know that you can trust them over the long term that they know you. After you get married, keep assessing that gap, gap between trust and fear. Keep assessing each other. Work jointly on building trust along every component. Everything that you notice shouldn't be a reason to, okay, let's get divorced. We have a, a gap here. We, we have a difference here. Uh, we have a value that we don't share or, or we share opposite values and so on. Just keep on working on it. Uh, and you know, the more you talk about that, the more you analyze it, the more the more you confront it, the less it has the probability of all of a sudden uh, crossing a point of no return, and then it ends up with marriage. So as I said, I am not a marriage counselor. I my experience with marriage is limited to one marriage that I'm part of. Uh, a friend of mine asked me uh, about my ex-wife and I had to correct him and tell him that I'm still married to my first ex-wife, which means we got married. Uh, I don't remember how old I was anymore, but it was almost 30 years ago. And uh, we're still married and we have a very strong marriage. And I believe that the level of trust, at least the trust that I experience, that I feel in my wife grows faster than the level of risk that that I feel that we're taking uh, in this marriage. And uh, that's the experience that I have. Plus, you know, hearing about others, but not knowing enough. Uh, it's, um, I think the advice I'm giving here is is really not advice. It's really just analysis. It's applying the relative trustworthiness model and the, the eight laws of trust applying it to this kind of relationship because that model applies and those eight laws apply to every relationship including this one this was fun i hope it was fun for you i hope it made you think and uh hopefully next week i'll have a topic that comes back to uh the workplace trust in the workplace What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening 
or watching The Trust Show.